This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. But everyone else, all we see are the grants they got, the papers they have published. The only negative data and failed experiments that we're intimately familiar with are our own. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk with a clinical psychologist to find out why PhD training is so difficult and learn about the tools you'll need to be successful. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 135. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Josh, good to see you. No, I can't see you because my internet is not good enough to be able to do video and audio at the same time. We had to cut the video, so I'm only hearing your your fabulous baritone voice, Dan. <laughs> I don't even think I was a baritone in, yeah. in high school. Well, Dan, I think this week we're going to do things a little bit differently. In place of the ethanol section, I think there's some really important things that, that we need to discuss here at the top of the show. Yeah, there is no ignoring what is happening in the United States and around the world. And I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be important for us to talk about it here and not just this week, but in the coming weeks. So why don't you tell us, Josh, about what's happening in science and what's happening on the streets? Yeah, I mean, so 2020, wow. I mean, what a year it's been so far and we're only halfway done. But, you know, after months of having our daily lives turned upside down, due to the COVID-related shutdowns that we've talked about on the show. The last few episodes, you know, we're living through the biggest pandemic in the last hundred years. And over the last couple of weeks, the United States has been rocked again by the killing of Black Americans, um, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery. Um, The latter two deaths were also accompanied by graphic video footage. And in response to, to these specific instances and Really, you know, it's not just these instances, but on the heels of countless incidents like this throughout the years, protests have erupted in nearly every American city uh, because there have been three more deaths of black citizens um, in the United States at the hands of police or at the hands of fellow citizens. And Dan, the real crux of the issue here is when these things have continued to happen and have happened here, it's it's become a familiar script that these black lives are ended and there are no consequences and, and no punishment um, for the ending of black lives. And we've reached a breaking point and people are out on the streets demanding change. And it feels like hundreds of years too late. And yet, finally, finally it's happening. And it feels like it's it's the groundswell that's behind it, the the emotion, the number of people, the even the polling behind it, the number of Americans who, who finally recognize, hey, wait a minute, black lives do matter. This is not an okay thing for police to do to people, for random citizens to do, to chase and murder a black man. Um, it, it, as it spills out, it's also spilling into other aspects of our society and is not just a conversation about police, Josh. Um, on Twitter today, I saw a... I saw hashtags about um, shut down STEM, shut down academia. And I would like to understand what impact this is having in the world that we talk about every day, which is uh, the academic and, and graduate training world. 
Yeah, and so that's what we wanted to take a few moments here at the top of the show to to talk about the ways that this this movement that's that's swelling all across the country here in the United States, what this means for academia and sort of the light that's being shined on the continued racism that has uh, has existed in our society in our culture. You know, Dan, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of focus on on racism in America right now because of these these events that happened in rapid succession but these were just the tip of the iceberg it's not like these are the this is the first time these things have happened and we're outraged you know it's almost like um, a tipping point has happened at last and these events i think have led all of us to introspect in our own personal and professional corners about the ways that racism and bias both implicit bias and explicit bias can limit the opportunities and the success of our black friends and colleagues. I think I've talked a little bit about it on the show before, but I've been in, I've been involved in diversity and inclusion work in STEM um, in academia for the past 10 years. And you know, on one hand, I've seen some of the changes that have happened during that time in academia that have really made me hopeful. But when I reflect back on, on the last 10 years, so many other things that I've personally heard with my own ears, things people have said and actions people have taken um, have really made me wonder if we're making any progress at all. Um, if you haven't seen it, Dan, you mentioned the the shutdown STEM hashtag where folks in academia and STEM were encouraged. We're recording this on um, Thursday, June 11th, but yesterday on Wednesday, June 10th, to really stop their academic activities and spend that time instead to reflect upon racism and what that looks like in academia and ways we can work for equality and change within academia but one of the other hashtags that's been trending that I think has been especially powerful is the black in the ivory hashtag. So what this is, is this has been hundreds of stories at this point of accounts from black academics who have experienced racism and microaggressions and belittlement in their labs, in their departments, um, in their universities. And, and these personal stories that, that just the, the sheer volume of, of these stories that have been shared, you know, make a couple things clear. And, and that is that one, um, these are all stories from academia, from our academic institutions of higher learning. And, and that points to the fact that first, education is not a cure for racism and bias. Uh, I think there's actually evidence that education can make bias worse because you, you become more falsely self-assured of your own lack of bias. But number two, just the, the sheer volume of these accounts make it very clear that racism is everywhere. It's at your school. It's in your department. And it very well might be um, in you and in me. And I think we've mentioned before on the show, Harvard has um, a website and they call, that they call Project Implicit, where you can go and assess your own implicit biases against a multitude of different people groups. And a surprising finding that these tests reveal is that being in a group doesn't even preclude you from having bias against that group. For example, women in STEM tend to be biased against other women in STEM, and minority groups can be biased against their own minority group. And the reason for that is because these these isms and these biases um, are baked into the very fabric of the society where we live and work. They're systemic. And, and because of this, I think it's important to note that having these biases doesn't make you a bad person. Because again, I mean, these are products of our environment and the society that we walk through day in and day out. But where the problem comes in is when we ignore these biases 
and we think we're personally immune to having these issues and having this bias in our own viewpoints. Um, and that really leads to where we are now. You know, we've reached a moment in time, finally, I guess, uh, way later than, than we should have, where now it seems that finally a critical mass of Americans who are in the majority group are realizing that racism and bias against black Americans does in fact exist in 2020 and that it's not just you know, these crazy extreme examples of, of people marching around holding Confederate flags, sort of this car- caricature of rach- racism. And I think what potentially we've done, especially those of us in the academy, is, you know, we hold our nose up at those examples. And clearly those, those are not good, right? Those are despicable. But we tend to think, well, that's them. They have a problem. But we don't. I don't. But I think what we're seeing is racism and bias is in our house. It is in our universities and in our departments and labs. If you had told me as a, an undergraduate or as somebody who maybe had not been through graduate school, had not spent time in academia, if you said, are the most educated people in the world also often racist or also harboring biases, I would have said, there's no way. They are adhering to the scientific method and they recognize that they have to take an unbiased view of their work and and that's how science progresses. And the experience of having been through graduate school and talking to people tells us that for all of our objectivity and all of our scientific training, we are not free from this burden of being biased and being racist. Um, I think, Josh, when you and I were coming through and, and part of our experiences, I was probably more aware of the sexism that was happening at at that time. Um, Racism was certainly happening and I just didn't pay attention to it or I didn't know about it. And, and reading some of these stories on Twitter of people and, and things that professors said to them, some of them are infuriating. Some of them are, are sickening. Some of them are just stupid. And I don't think I, because I didn't have that experience, I had no idea that that was going on in a lot of cases. And so I think hearing these stories and, and just understanding what it's like to be a minority student in academia through their own voice is, it will open your eyes to a world that, that many of us didn't experience and had no idea was even happening. Yeah, and I think that's an important perspective and an important consideration, even as we think about how we as individuals from the majority group react and respond to this because I've read about and listened to some of my friends and colleagues who are black talking about even through this, a little bit of their frustration and exasperation with the fact that now all of a sudden on one hand it's good, all of these white people around them, suddenly their eyes are open to these things that have happened. But on the flip side, it can feel a little bit frustrating and exhausting to think, you know, these are things that I've been dealing with my whole career for years. And just now, finally, are you opening your eyes and acknowledging what's been my reality throughout my entire career? And, and so I think there's a bit of that that's, that is a bit exasperating. But what I want to do is I want to take just a moment and, and talk just a little bit about what are some things we can do to combat racism and bias in our little corner of of our professional world in academia, um, in our own universities and our own departments and labs. Because I think, I mean, if there's anything that has, has come out of this, it's that at this point in time, inaction and closing your eyes again is not an option. 
And so I think there really is a palpable um, sense and motivation people feel to act and do something. So um, I thought we could just talk about a few ideas of things that you could do in your labs, in your departments, um, at your universities to hopefully be part of the change that's, that's sweeping across our country now. That sounds great. So what are they, Josh? So the first one is, I think we all have to start with ourselves. And I think it's hard for us to uh, be part of the change and to advocate for things to change and, and really to be there to support our black friends and colleagues before we have self-reflection and examine um, ourselves. So I think my encouragement would be if terms like microaggression or stereotype threat are, are terms that are new to you and, and things you, you haven't really heard about, or maybe you've heard them used for the first time over the last couple of weeks, and you don't exactly know what that means um, and how that manifests within an academic setting, use Google. Take some time to educate yourself to learn about some of these terms and some of these ways that bias and racism really have been and continue to be present in academia. There have been so many posts and so many um, lists out there over the last couple of weeks of really great um, literature and books that exist on these topics. I'm not going to go over all of them now. There are plenty of places where you can find these. We'll post a list to some recommended books in our show notes. But, but I think that's where it begins for all of us is we need to learn. We need to um, listen, but also take the time to educate ourselves. And, and really, it's not, it's not the work of our black friends and colleagues to do that work for us, to educate us, because we have an internet connection. We have a search engine. We can find that information ourselves. So I think, I think that's where it starts. And, and that's what I've been trying to do too, Dan. I mean, I mentioned... I've been working in the diversity space for a decade now, but there's so many things I still don't know and I'm still learning. And so that's my first encouragement for all of us. I think that makes sense. And, and these links will all be in the show notes, right, Josh? Yep, that's right. So, so once you've done that and you started to learn about some of the ways that these issues can manifest day to day in our academic work environments, I think the next goal that, that is important for us is to, is to move from being a bystander to being an upstander. And, and what, what I mean by that is we start to transform from maybe the type of person who can recognize these microaggressions and these biases in action um, in our own settings, but we actually become someone who challenges and stands up against racism and bias uh, when we encounter it. Uh, you've probably heard the term anti-racist floating around. And, and really what this means is just working towards not just being someone who is adept at recognizing racism, but you're actually involved in fighting actively against it. And this part is not easy. This part of moving towards being someone who stands up against racism and bias, this is not a pain-free thing to do. And, and I think if it was that easy to do, uh, we might not even be in the place where we are right now because, you know, becoming an upstander, uh, becoming an anti-racist, you know, this involves things like actually confronting your PI or another grad student in your lab or even your parents or members of your family actually saying something when, you know, racism or bias peeks its head out, uh, but not just being complicit and silent. And that can be hard because it challenges these relationships. Um, but 
I don't think we change the culture and we don't change the widespread system without each of us fighting this fight together. Dan, I mean, you know, I work closely with lots of scientists of color, lots of, lots of them are trainees in labs right now. And with everything going on in this past week, the most common problem that I've encountered when I've, I've worked with these students, I've talked to these students, is they report these comments or, or in some cases just cluelessness of not necessarily the PIs of their lab, although sometimes that happens, but other grad students in the lab. And I mean, I, th- I think the point is that it's uncomfortable. I mean, speaking up about this is uncomfortable because the people you're going to be speaking up to are probably people you consider friends or colleagues or a boss or a coworker that you have to see every day or your mom or your dad. And it's not easy. It's never comfortable. You know, I wonder if one way to approach this is, and and this might be a thought exercise for all of us to do now is to think about none of us are perfect. Let's say, let's say you said something, Dan, or I said something that, you know, really was out of line. How would you want someone to approach you about that? Or how would you want someone to confront you about that? Because I think, I think both of us, Dan, or I think neither of us would want, oh, I would just want nobody to tell me. I'd want, I mean, I'd, I know that's not what I would want. Um, so maybe it's thinking about how would you want to be approached yourself if it was you? And maybe that will be insightful for how you might approach your, you know, your colleagues or, or friends or family. And, and so then I think the last thing, Dan, that I want to talk a little bit about is starting to be someone who, who is aware of the, the culture of where you are and start to be an advocate for change in those environments. So I think all of us, you know, if you're a grad student, look around your lab, look around your department. Uh, is the representation of black and brown faces among your fellow lab workers, uh, the other grad students in your program? And what about the faculty? Uh, black faculty are severely underrepresented in STEM fields at most research institutions in the United States. So there's a good chance that there may be no black faculty in your department. So bring this up to your PI, uh, to the director of graduate studies in your program, to your department chair. And I want to acknowledge that as a single grad student, that maybe can be scary to do, to feel like you're, you know, making noise or sowing dissent to people of power within your department. But you know what you can do? I mean, maybe consider writing a letter uh, that's not just from you, but, but jointly signed by multiple grad students in the department. Because so many of these problems in academia, they, they can't fully be solved until there actually is representation of black scientists in faculty and leadership positions at our universities, in our departments. So if that's not the case where you are, you know, demand that suggest like we looked around and we noticed this. We, as the students of this program, um, especially in this moment, we see that and we, because we care about this department and we want it to be the best that it can be, or we care about this lab, we are advocating for change. And that can have a lot of power, probably more than you think. Josh, I think one of the things that, one of the messages that I've been trying to understand this week is that this is not a week. This is not a conversation that ends when protests end. And it's not a conversation that ends when um, police reform happens or whatever it is. This is a conversation that has to keep happening. 
and you and I are super white and we don't have <laughs> the whitest of the white. We don't damn. have Yeah, we we can't speak from the perspective of a minority student coming in through uh, the academic training pathway. And so I think we you and I really want to commit to bringing more of this topic to the show more frequently, um, bringing more voices from people who have lived the experience of of trying to travel these pathways. And so we're going to keep including it in the show, maybe small snippets, maybe full episodes, whole conversations, maybe guest conversations. Um, but it, I think it needs to continue to be part of what we talk about for a long time. And and so we're going to commit to doing that. Absolutely. Well, Dan, um, I don't really have a good segue from there. Um, we do have some people we would like to say thank you to. And the first is we have a new Patreon patron this week. So a special thank you to Pixie Muffin, who is our newest Patreon patron. I assume that is not the given name, but thank you so much to Pixie Muffin. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, and if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash hellphd or uh, go to our website, hellphd.com and click the become a patron button and we will invite you to our Slack channel for our Patreon patrons. Um, who else do we want to thank, Dan? Well, we want to remind everybody who is still in quarantine or who maybe is getting back to the lab, but but you're finishing up some manuscripts, you're finishing up some writing. Um, do not miss the Promega webinar titled Writing About Science, Tips and Tricks for Communicating Your Research. That presentation already happened, but it is still available on demand. So you can go to promega.com slash hellophd, enter a little bit of information, and uh, check out that webinar. I think it's it's a really good one, and especially for this time when I know that people have been doing a lot of writing because they have not been doing a lot of experimenting. All right, Dan. Well, why don't we uh, move into our other topic of the week? <laughs> Josh, we have been so lucky in the past few months. People have been sending us books, which I love. I know, I know, uh, you're a big reader yourself, and uh, it's fun to get something in the mail. Uh, most of the listeners would hear me <laughs> say joking. that. I'm just joking. I know you can't read. Josh. I think that was true. Uh, I have been reading Dan every night. Did I ever tell you what I'm reading? What are you reading? I've been reading The Stand. The right? Stand by Stephen King about a plague that wipes out most of the human population. It's a really long book, Dan. I feel like I read like an hour a night and my Kindle says I've only advanced like 2% in the book. It's, it's really demotivating. It's almost like grad school. <laughs> but the other book I've been reading is the Early Career Researcher's Toolbox um, that was kindly sent to us by Dr. Andres de los Reyes. And you got a chance to talk to him. I sure did. And what a fascinating conversation, Josh. You know, we live so deeply in the world of biomedical research. I think sometimes I forget that there are all of these other disciplines out there. And what is so fascinating to me about uh, this particular book is that it is written by a clinical psychology PhD. And as you can imagine, by studying human development, human behavior... I feel like Dr. Dillis Reyes has uncovered some problems and some solutions to this process that we go through as scientists, where we go from an undergraduate who has spent a lot of time reading books and taking tests 
to a principal investigator who is expected to come up with a research program with grants and peer reviews and mentoring and all of the things that go with that. And and Josh, we've talked about it a thousand times. It feels like there is this gap in training between what you're expected to do as a PI and what you are trained to do as a graduate student. I think to some degree, I wonder if that is a discouragement for some trainees even wanting to pursue that path of, of having an independent research lab. I know sometimes it almost, it, it seems so intimidating to think about being a PI um, and think about just showing up, imagine getting that job and you're in this like empty lab space that you've been given and it's like, okay, got to think up some ideas now <laughs> to get some grants. Some ideas. <laughs> Show me your budget. Yeah. Uh, who are you going to hire and how will you know if they're good? Yeah. There, there's a lot to it. And nobody teaches and so, you those things. Nobody teaches you the thing. So, so I talked to Dr. Dillis Reyes to find out what does this look like from a clinical psychologist perspective and what is the, that we can learn from other people's experiences, other people's stories to help get us through this time. So please take a listen. I am joined today by author and professor Andres de los Reyes. Welcome to the show. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. And I, I would love for you to introduce yourself a little bit just so that people know uh, who you are and a little bit about your background. Sure. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland at College Park. I've been there since 2008. Uh, I'm also the, uh, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology. It's the primary research journal for the Society of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology. Uh, and I'm also really, really interested in helping people uh, do science good. <laughs> I can appreciate that. I, I think from a, a trainee's perspective, from anybody's perspective, your career has been successful so far. I would say you're just getting started. You are a, you are tenured, which is something people dream of. Uh, you're editor of an academic journal. You chaired boards and forums. You have awards and grants. I'm doing this by way of asking how you learned to do all of these things and why did you decide to write a guide for the people coming behind you? I don't actually, I don't think I've mentioned the name of the book yet, have I? No. <laughs> the book is The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox uh, Insights into Mentors, Peer Review, and Landing a Faculty Job, something that I think a lot of listeners are going to be excited about. So uh, the question again was how did you learn to do these things and, and why write a book for other people? I learned to do these things with great mentorship. I had a fantastic advisor in grad school. Dr. Alan Kazin, who was a former president of the American Psychological Association. And he studied how to modify people's behavior so they, they stop doing destructive things. It just so happens that he used a lot of the same things that he might be using in the clinic to help his students improve how they do their work. Even tiny things like if you've ever gotten a paper back from, a, uh, from an advisor or a collaborator and you, and you saw a thing that said unclear or like a question mark, you know, we've had those circumstances. They're frustrating because we don't, they're, they're flooded with, they're by definition uncertain. So you can't, you don't know what to do next. He did this great thing. It's a hypothesis test. He basically said, I found this unclear. Did you mean this? If so, I suggest this. Even if he's dead wrong, he still gets you to thinking, you know what, this wasn't unclear, and I didn't mean what he just thought I meant. 
I'm going to do this instead. You know, so even tiny little things, you know, if you're ever interested in, in, in doing this kind of job, you, you get, you get that kind of mentorship and it, you sort of say to yourself on the off chance, this helps. Like if I, if I actually get one of these jobs, I'm going to tuck that in my back pocket. And it's one of a variety of different kinds of tools that, that, that I just pull out when I think my students need them. I think that's so fascinating. And that came through in the book, your background in clinical psychology maybe opened up your eyes to this process that most of us stumbled through. And if we got lucky, we had that mentor. Um, People who got really lucky had multiple great mentors. But I don't feel like there was a lot of introspection or retrospection about what made some people successful and others not. And the discipline, you know, psychology is, is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, it's, it's part and parcel of I'm curious about, I'm curious about behavior, why people, you know, see the things they see, you know, act the way they act. And it just so happens that if we want to do science better, you know, those things are usually behavior changes. Used, those are usually things you do to modify your, your, uh, you, the way you go about doing things or the way you, the way you perceive things. And so I, I've grown to think of the discipline as not only helping me learn about what I'm curious about, but also helping others to figure out how they can modify things to, uh, to improve. Very early in the book, you define this term. You, I don't know if you coined it or just help us to understand it, but, but you call us emerging academics. When we're early in that training, we, maybe we're graduate students or we're applying to graduate school. Um, what is an emerging academic and, and where did that idea come from? So an emerging academic is somebody who's on track to become an independent research and is still in the process of acquiring the tools necessary to do scientific work on their own. And what got me curious about this period in people's work lives is that in some ways it looks like a bunch of other developmental periods that we've all gone through from childhood to adulthood all at one time. So when you're first, when you're in your first few years of, of grad school, for instance, it's kind of feels like you're going through childhood all the way through what we would, what psychologists call emerging adulthood. So that period after adolescence, when you're still growing, uh, but there, you have more independence. Right? Being a grad student, usually often it feels like you're learning a bunch of things at one time. So it's kind of like you're learning how to sprint. You're taking in all this knowledge from coursework, but then you're also asked very quickly, soon after you learn new things, to figure out where the holes are and what you're going to do to fill them. So it's the rapid development is one thing. The other thing is, is that when we're tasked to do new things, defend a thesis, write a paper, respond to commentary from peers, respond to mentors' feedback to see if you can get this project from of beginning to completion, those periods are marked with uncertainty. Many times you're being tasked to do a thing and you're not given much guidance on how to do that thing. And part of the reason why that is is because our our programs, our graduate programs, our postdoctoral training programs, oftentimes are stretched to the max in trying to give you book smarts to just teach you how to become a card care member of your own discipline. But there is, And that doesn't leave a lot of room for what I call street smarts, 
beyond the actual things you're learning to become somebody, a member of, of the physics club or the psychology club or the pediatrics club or the social work club, beyond those things, how do you actually do the job? How do you get the job? How do you keep the job? I think that's where a lot of this work, a lot of... So I come from a biomedical background and I will never forget, you walk into the lab as a new student, bright-eyed, you're going to do this science thing that everybody talks about. And <laughs> the you observe the principal investigator of the lab or your mentor, and it feels like an insurmountable chasm between where you are as a person who doesn't even know every third term in the sentence to the kinds of questions that they're asking and the activities that they're doing. They're writing grants. I, I have no idea the first thing to do on a grant. I don't understand how to write an academic paper. I don't know how to... And there isn't a lot of training in the process. Uh, we have long lamented there's a lot of activity you do as a, to be successful as a graduate student or as a postdoc that you then have to leave behind. So maybe you get really good working at the bench or designing an experiment or, or doing clinical research. Then you need to go be an academic at a university and you need to manage people and you need to manage money and you need to manage projects. Well, who told me how to do those things? That's not how I was successful. And, and I think you describe it really well in the book. That is a scary, unusual time for, I think, everybody. It's, hor it's horrifically scary. Uh, it's scary during the training process. It's scary when you first start your first, when you start your first job. I had two really important moments early on as faculty at Maryland that really profoundly shaped my uh, timing. And it had to do with a couple of very short interactions that I had with some colleagues that helped me work through my imposter syndrome. You were noting all the symptoms in there, <laughs> basically. You know, how do I get to this point? You know, uh, you know, do I even have what it takes to cut it? If only they found and, out about me, they would kick me out immediately. Yeah, yeah that all that. I was talking with a friend of mine, and this is when she was at uh, at D in, in DC at the Children's National Medical Center. She was doing uh, her first few years of faculty there, and uh, we're walking to her to her uh, office, and she says. Most days when I come here, I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, this is somebody who's had this job for three years. She's already, she's already had, she had an NIH grant. Uh, you know, she was well on her way to doing all the great things. She, a few months after that, I had a, a, a very quick interaction at a conference with a mentor by Mitch Princeton, professor at University of North Carolina. And, uh, and, and years later, I told, I told Mitch, we spent 10 seconds talking about something. And, and you had no idea how it yeah, we walked past each other at a conference and he says, and he, he must have seen the look on my face. And he said, uh, no one knows how to be a professor when they first start. And just those two things were just a wave. It was, it was, it was so helpful to, to hear those two things. And, and you know, the toughest part of the imposterism, I think, is that chasm that you see when you're a student or when you're a postdoc. That chasm between you and your mentor. I have a hypothesis as to one of the key reasons why we have, uh, why that chasm exists. And it has to do with what's visible in science and what's invisible in science. My favorite comparison between, between science and other, and other walks of life, baseball. So my, my dad's an engineer. My brother's an engineer. I'm not. And, uh, and they love numbers. So obviously they love baseball. They're also Cuban, so so that's, that's basically the only one we like. Um, that helps. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and uh, Miguel Cabrera uh, in 2012 was the last winner of the Triple Crown. So highest batting average in the league, you know, most home runs, most runs batted in. If you look at his record, well, one of the first things you notice is his batting average three is 300 and change, which means he failed 70% of the time. And not only that, we've seen every time Miguel Cabrera succeeded, we've, we've seen every single time he's failed. And somebody's tracking it. And somebody's tracking it. Uh, well, the question I always pose to, to people is, what would baseball look like? What would our perceptions of the, base, of the athletes be if we only saw their hits? We didn't see their misses. We didn't see their strikeouts, their, their lost games. It would look like academia. Because all the things that we, that we do, the articles we publish, the grants we get, the awards bestowed upon us, everyone knows they exist. It's the rejections, the failures, the things that build up are the foundations of our successes that no one sees unless we tell people. The manuscript you get rejected, the editor and the reviewers know. You don't, uh, and you know, but no one else knows unless you tell, or, and tell somebody else. The, the grant rejection you receive. And so I think that that distinction between our successes and failures, the, the fact that one of them is, you know, partially explains why we often see qualities in our mentors that we don't see in ourselves because we, we knew from the outside before we started working with them, we saw all the great things and we didn't actually see the walls behind the curtain until we get there. And by then it's too late. <laughs> then we already know they're amazing. Um, and and yeah. the baseball analogy is such a good one. If every at bat was a hit and I watched a person do that and then I stood up and, and let's say I got uh, you know 70% miss and 30% hit, which is great. I would feel terrible and, and they would look superhuman. Yeah. They're, yeah. They would look magical to hit every ball that came at them at 90 miles an hour. And that's what that's what the PI looks like. Yeah, it's it's two R O ones. Well, how many rejection letters came? A hundred publications. How many rejection letters does that mean? I don't know. Yeah, in in some respects, I think one of the things that where where I think mentors can help out everyone else is to every once in a while tell people about 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 where the struggles. You know, just just to humanize the experience. I'm going to give a, a virtual workshop all workshops are virtual now uh <laughs> don't even need to say it anymore uh, right yeah yeah um with a group in in canada next month and and we're going to talk about failure obviously because it's so normative in our discipline and i spent some time walking them through what my stats are right now with grants i got my first one seven years after i started at maryland i got my second one three years after that my third one, a really small one, I got I got just in the last mu- uh, uh, month or so. My batting average is like a third of my weight. It's <laughs> uh, it's 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 really 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 bad. Uh, and, and that's got to be that's true for everybody. Normative. Yeah, yeah. Jumping back to to the book because you've got the it's structured in such a way that it really is a toolbox. And and what I love about it is your you're both providing these tools, these these very concrete actions that a student can take, but you're also providing a lot of stories, a lot of uh, what I think yeah. you call anonymous accounts. Can you talk a little bit about those and, and why that was important? Yeah, you know, uh, so another hypothesis that I had 
I, I have with these kinds of books, books about professional development, is that because our programs spend too much time covering book smarts at the expense of covering street smarts, that rarely will it be the case that, that somebody picking up this book will be using it or reading it for a class. This is not tied to a pop quiz or a midterm or a final. Right? And so my hypothesis with the book as I was writing it was it, it can't look like a textbook. It has to feel like something you'll do on your free time because that's basically what people are doing when they're reading the book. They're going to do it at the expense of Netflix, at the expense of hanging out with friends, at the expense of virtual happy hour. They're going to be doing this instead. So, so it has to have a component like that. And, and, and what better way to, to simulate free time and to try to share characteristics of what free time looks like. Free time is storage. The anonymous accounts came about when I was thinking about how to organize the book. I thought, well, one of the things that I should be doing with these tools, particularly if they're new to people, things like addressing commentary from peers and, and putting together a job talk is to what psychologists would call model. Model, be, model the, the, the behaviors you want people to start engaging in. I asked <laughs> my, one of my current grad students, Bridget uh, McCall, if it'd be okay for me to use her work as an example for the job talk portion of the book. She graciously agreed. And as, we're, as I was working through the book, I sort of thought to myself, and no matter how I talk about Bridget's work in the book, she's going to come off perfect. She's going to come off great. She's going to come off, you know, like, like she has it all figured out. When, she's, when in reality, she, Bridget is great, but she is just like the rest of us. We're, we're, we're figuring it out as we go along. So the, account, the anonymous accounts in the book, which are written by, by grad students, postdocs, early career faculty, about all the trials and tribulations of, uh, of the training experience in, the, in your first years in the job, uh, you know, those are designed to sort of give people a, an additional set of narratives that really bring to life a lot of the different kinds of tools and, and topics that we cover in the book. No, they're, they're really memorable. And they put a punctuation mark on some of the, the steps that you're suggesting people to reading somebody else's experience of reviewer number two. It, it's humanizing and it makes me feel like I'm not alone in despising yeah. reviewer number two. I think the more that science generally discusses these kinds of uh, of issues, the more we normalize these struggles, I think the easier it's going to be to start to tackle them systematically. Uh, you know, because the thing is that, you know, going back to our first impressions of our, of our mentors, a lot of it looks like magic, but very little of it is. Very little of it is, is, a, is, is something you're born with, you know, very little, it, much of it is, is learned and, and practiced. And that doesn't mean that, that the tools are foolproof, the things you do are foolproof, but they, they dramatically reduce the risk, let you always encounter the, things that we, the thing that we all encounter, the failure. Well, I would love to talk about the, the book is organized around these three core questions, these three themes. And I'm going to try to get you to agree to come back to talk about all of them and give them their, their due course. But I'll, I'll just go ahead and read them here. And then I'd, I'd like to dive into the first one a little bit. Question number one, and this is something that a, an emerging academic needs to be able to answer by the time they finish their training. Where do you fit within academia? And what burning question drives your work? We're going we're gonna to come back to that in a second. 
on the path to publishing your work, how do you respond to reviews of your work? And that's really around the peer review review process. And then finally, how do you connect pieces of your work to build a research program? And that one is totally loaded to <laughs> the, the idea that I need to build a research program, uh, I think, feels scary. It feels true. And, and the book has a lot of advice on that. If we get back to that first question, where do you fit within academia and what burning question drives your work? That is a question that it helps to ask maybe even before you start a graduate program or when should we be answering that? Well, Josh, forgive me for the end of that clip because clearly I am teasing for the next segment of my interview with Dr. Dillis Reyes um, and, and hopefully some interviews to come because I think what he has to say is so important Josh, I was really excited because I had never considered the training of a graduate student and a postdoc from the perspective of this is very similar to how a child grows into an adult or a teenager progresses from um, teenagehood, let's say when you graduate from high school, going through college to become an adult where you're living on your own, you're learning to manage your budget, you're learning to Uh, cook for yourself in many cases. There are all of these things that you're expected to do in this really uh, constrained time period. And it was interesting for me to think about, well, graduate school is the same thing. When I was a high school student, I looked at adults and thought, well, I can never do what they do. I can't balance a checkbook or I can't. I couldn't imagine how I was going to plan my year around my career and I couldn't figure out how people raise children and I couldn't all of these things that you don't know how to do because you've never done them and you have to learn them really quickly that is precisely what we're asking graduate students to do and any help we can give them in that period and I think there's a lot I think is going to be so valuable yeah I I think that's absolutely true and it is a really interesting analogy Um, you know one of the related points he made to that that I found interesting was was talking a little bit about how programs the degree to which programs focus on book smarts versus street smarts was I think what he how he described it um, but but basically uh, pumping up the knowledge base of, of the students in the program versus nurturing these practical skills and you know I can I can compare that with how I think about raising children since that's something I'm doing now. I mean, yes, I want them to learn stuff, but you know, when I think about wanting them to also be independent (laughs) functioning adults, um, I want to make sure they have some of these practical skills that honestly are probably more important (laughs) to their success as an adult um, than if they know calculus or they read Shakespeare. Yeah. And I think the way, the way he phrases it, he said, you know, you have to have the book smarts to become a card carrying member of whatever your micro discipline is. And that's so true. But the thing that my physiology PI wasn't doing was experimenting on how her behaviors were affecting her students. And I, I guess this is a, a way to say, this is why the clinical psychology approach is so compelling to me because this is a realm of knowledge where people have done experiments to find out what actually does work to train another human being to do a task, to be successful, to be happy. Um, and, and so applying that knowledge, that, that same scientific process to training, to scientific training, I think is, is an eye-opener for me. That is interesting. And, and I know there's been an increased interest in actually providing training for faculty 
in their in their mentoring in in the biomedical sciences they're uh, I think we may have talked about this on a show many, many moons ago. Um, the National Research Mentoring Network, NRMN, you know, this is a consortium funded by NIH that really exists to develop some training materials and some curricula and information to help faculty and advisors uh, become better mentors. Are they measuring their outcomes from those training sessions? Uh, yeah, they are, actually. They are... They. I think what's been interesting is, I think because it's funded from NIH, from a research um, institute, you know, this has all been couched in in data and in um, validating a lot of the tools that they're using. And so they've been very particular in when faculty participate in these workshops, um, collecting data, um, not just from the faculty, but from the trainees also uh, to assess how well do these things work? Uh, is there actually a... A tangible output, a positive outcome from from this material, from these trainings. I mean, that's wonderful. And have you seen an increased focus on training for the things outside of the book smarts? Things like um, how to write a grant or how to design an experiment? Um, I think yes. I think that has been a small trend, a slow evolution. I think honestly, as far as graduate training goes, um, at least in the sciences, in, in sort of lab-based programs, I think there's still a lot of work to do moving away from these specific knowledge courses, uh, like where we just go sit in a room and learn about cell biology, but but moving towards a curriculum that, that trains more practical skills, like you know, things like scientific writing or experimental design, how to analyze your data, how to communicate effectively. I have seen some programs that have really been trailblazers in doing this, kind of this mo- almost moving away from book smarts to street smarts um, in the curriculum that their first and second year grad students take part in. But I think this is a real growth area for a lot of programs. So I was glad to hear uh, Dr. Uh, Dalis Race talk about this, and, and that's what it made me think about in my own context. Yeah, I really enjoy some of the stories about how other people feel imposter syndrome, that there are, you know, he talked about some professor friends of his who say, yeah, we don't, we still don't know what we're doing, but but they're, they're making it work, even though from the outside, we look at them and say, look how confident they are. Look how skilled they are. They know exactly what's happening. But the reality is they are making it up as they go, um, hopefully with good mentorship, but not always. And they're still making it work. Um, and, and Josh, hopefully you can explain to me the baseball <laughs> batting average thing. No, I, I, I followed along. <laughs> The imposter syndrome conversation, um, the example he gave, I thought was really, that really stuck with me. I might have told this story on the show before, but I can remember being a senior grad student getting ready to go on the the postdoc job search. And I was really dragging my feet in not reaching out, not sending emails to potential postdoc advisors. And, and my PI actually reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I've we've talked about some faculty that might be a good match for you, but have you emailed him yet? It's like, no, not really, not yet. And he said, well, what's holding you back? And so I, I can really vividly remember this. I told him that honestly, even though I was nearing the end of my, my PhD, I was just not having a lot of self-confidence in my ability to leave grad school and to be a postdoc. Yeah, I didn't feel like that was something I You didn't I feel ready. Do. And I can remember him sharing with me that 
you know, at this point, he's a tenured faculty member and he was the director of graduate studies in my department and very well respected. And he said, you know, I look around my look around the building at, at my colleagues and I hear the questions they ask in seminar and I feel like they're all so much smarter than me. And every day I have to fight myself, you know, feeling like I'm not good enough to be here. And that was strangely comforting to me. I can see on one hand how that might have been crushing because I was like, well, geez, if this guy, <laughs> if this guy can't even, you know, if he feels this way. Um, but it was strangely comforting. Like, here's this scientist, this mentor that I really looked up to scientifically who also felt that way. I don't know. It, it normalized the way I felt, I think. Um, it made it okay for me to feel that way. No, and, and that's exactly what, what I talked about. We talked about in the interview. It is about sharing failure about revealing the fact that just because you have three grants doesn't mean that you didn't apply for 15 grants. And I think this is where the baseball analogy comes in. You're only seeing the hits and you're never seeing the strikeouts and the, I don't know, give me some other baseball terms, Josh. Are there walks in baseball? Can you, can you get hit with the ball? Uh, you can, you, you can, um, uh, <laughs> But you know what I'm saying. I do. Well, you know, at first I have to say all of this baseball talk made me really sad because if there's something that I'm really missing in my life right now, it's the no baseball is really getting to me, Dan. That was a big, having a baseball game on in the background. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit uh, triggering for me having no baseball right now. I thought that was also a great analogy. I looked up, Dan, last year's baseball season, the the player who had the best batting average in Major League Baseball was a guy named Tim Anderson, who played for the Chicago White Sox. And he batted 335 in 498 at bats. And so basically, what that means is 33% of the time he got a hit. And he was the best in, in baseball, right? Last year. That's pretty incredible. And, but, but what that means, you know, what's interesting is 320 times. In last year's baseball season, he went up to the plate and he had a disappointing outcome. He got out and the fans groaned. <laughs> 66% of the time, something negative happened when he stepped up to the plate and he's the best. You know, and of that, he struck out 109 times, but he was the best hitter in the game. And I think you're right, Dan, in science, it's the same way. We, we see the positive outcomes, especially in, in everyone else right? And everyone else, all we see are the grants they got, the papers they have published, uh, the successes. And think about what we share most of the time when we give a scientific talk. We share the positive data, right? The only, the only negative data and failed experiments that we're intimately familiar with are our own. Uh, but that's a very um, narrow and non-realistic viewpoint. It's so true. And uh, I think one of the lessons that comes from that, and this is something that you'll find in the book, The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox, is that he focuses some of the tools on making sure you get more at-bats. Once you recognize that a lot of them are going to be strikeouts, how do you train yourself to keep getting up to the plate and to get more chances at getting a hit? And uh, some of the things he, he writes about in terms of how you write papers and how you submit them and how you deal with peer review are really focused on getting you as many chances as possible to get that hit, which in this case is a published paper. 
And not to completely stomp this analogy into the ground, but some of the most successful athletes, when you when you hear them talk about their own process and their own approach, the the people who are the most successful tend to be the ones who, when they have a negative outcome, they step up to the plate and they strike out or they shoot that three-point shot and they miss. The more adept they are at just immediately putting that from their mind so that the next time they come to the plate or the next shot they take, they're not thinking about that negative outcome they had previously, but they're focused on, I can do it this time around, you know, shaking off those negative outcomes. Um, That's a really important muscle to work out and a skill to have. That's a great insight. And I don't think that stretches it too far because I think getting discouraged and stopping, uh, deciding not to submit that next paper or deciding to not revise it the 15th time because of reviewer number two is a guarantee that you're not going to get the paper published. So anyways, uh, I want to want to leave it there and hopefully everybody will tune in for another episode when we learn about his take on mentorship, which has its own great analogies. And so I look forward to talking to you about that, Josh. All right, Dan, thanks so much. We have covered a lot of ground in the show tonight. So thank you for listening. And if you have thoughts on on any of the things we talked about, or you have questions or other topic ideas, we would really love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. We love getting your feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can just go to patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thank you very much to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Dan, it has been a pleasure once again. Thanks for stopping by on my Zoom channel. Josh, it was good talking to you. Keep fighting the good fight, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Dan. You too. You too.